This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, January the 26th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the Friday horns and go. Friday horns sound suspiciously like the Monday to Thursday horns, but they hit a little different, don't they? Coming up on the show today, the news panel assembles. Alex Smythe steps in for Joita Gupta. Michelle McQuig stops by, and I'll be chiming in, too, on a few of the most interesting news stories of the weeks, including a federal judge ruling the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act was unnecessary and unreasonable. What do you make of that ruling? Plus, the federal government is capping the number of international student visas. What effect could that have on the long-term viability of post-secondary institutions? And (laughs) I've been talking about this all week, and I wanted to revisit it one more time. Edmonton is increasing the cost of single-use paper bags. Where do you stand on reusable shopping bags? Once again, I will force you to open the door of your cabinets and kitchens to tell me the state of reusable bag overrun. And bounce around a couple ideas to, uh, you know, try to figure out how maybe we can do something with these reusable bags and not just have them as gargantuan piles of clutter. But the show begins with the top story of the day. A Canada-UK trade deal has hit a roadblock. Karen Rebo explains. The UK is hitting the brakes on the upcoming ninth round of trade talks after Ottawa decided not to extend two temporary measures put in place after Brexit. One measure that expired last month, a special quota for UK cheese imports, offered the same low tariff access to the Canadian market as the European Union has. Agriculture Minister Lawrence McCauley responded to the news, saying our job is to make sure we protect our farmers, and we're going to do that. Trade Minister Mary Ng blames stalled negotiations on a a British unwillingness to offer something in return, such as budging on a dispute over Canadian meat. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. So that's a bit of a concerning economic story, but there's some encouraging economic data coming out of the United States. Here's Andy Field. The last quarter's robust 3.3% economic growth was thanks in part to consumer spending, something Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen predicts will be less painful this year. Wages are rising more rapidly than prices. Price increases have now just about normalized. The Treasury Secretary saying fears of a recession are subsiding. Andy Field, ABC News, Washington. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Thursday, you were asked about your retail experience. Do you find it difficult to identify prices while navigating stores? There was unanimity. 100% of you said yes, and 0% of you said no. Over on X, Studio Brock writes in. Always love it when Studio Brock chimes into the conversation. 
Oh boy, I have some big feelings here. I work retail and I have to be about one centimeter away from these dang digital tags to read them. I don't know why Pricer, the company who makes our digital tags, can't add a button to these where they read out what's on the tag. Oh, always insightful commentary from Brock. Tony chimes in on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Yes, electronic shelf tags lack contrast and are difficult to read. So unanimity across the board there. Always appreciate you chiming in with either just your vote or a longer response in the comments section with any of the daily poll questions. Today's topic comes from the news. I'll have a clip in the second hour of the show from Alberta's health minister on this, but here's the news story. Over 100 pharmacy clinics will be providing some primary health services by the end of the year. This is in Alberta. How do you feel about pharmacies being used as health clinics, good or bad? Laura Bain, Alex Smith and I have tackled this before when Ontario brought in a similar policy early last year. So I think it's fair that you get the first crack at this. And by the way, Nova Scotia also has a similar program in place, not, you know, in your neck of the woods. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we do have them here. Now, I'm going to start with the positivity and say that I don't just feel good about these clinics. I feel great, fantastic about them. Absolutely. Um, and now the, you know, the, the negative, and I don't want to be too negative here, but Nova Scotia is in an absolute crisis when it comes to healthcare. We have over 140,000 people currently on the wait list for a family doctor. And you have to keep in mind the size of our province with that number. That's going to take years for people to get a family doctor. Now, I'm lucky enough, knock on wood, that I do have one as long as she doesn't leave or anything like that. But I used to use walking clinics sometimes, just like regular walking clinics, because they were convenient. You could mm -hmm. just walk in and, uh, you know, you might have to sit and wait for an hour or two, but you would get to see a doctor. That's not how it is anymore. You have to line up hours before the clinic opens and just hope that you get to see someone that day, because if you come when the clinic opens, the appointments will be gone for that day. Wow. Wow. Um, it is very difficult for some people who, like, if you don't have a family doctor, it's very difficult to get medical care here, unless it's like an emergency room thing. Yeah. So I am all for these clinics offering the services that they can. Now, they have limited services. They do things like medication management um, for conditions like diabetes, or say if you had like a urinary tract yep. infection, yep. they would pres prescribe for that. Um, I say, great, like, let's utilize these professionals to the extent that, you know, the scope of their profession allows to take mm -hmm. some burden off of a very overburdened system, which, by the way, last little rant, our premier, <laughs> our conservative premier, Tim Houston, was elected in 2021 on a promise to fix health care, but it has significantly deteriorated over that time. Well, you can tell that it's news panel Friday because Laura's all, Laura's all ramped up. It almost sounds like Laura wants it on the news panel <laughs> as, as, this, as this hour continues. Uh, Laura, I love that answer because you frame the positivity, but you don't lose sight of the bigger picture. You're still thinking about the context of the healthcare crisis. And Alex, that's quite similar to where I land. I think this is a cool 
solution, but it's only part of the solution, right? Anything you can do to increase access to any kind of primary health care is probably going to be a good thing. And it's worth noting that a lot of pharmacists and pharmacies are extremely on board with this. I don't know if you remember the interview that we did last year, Alex, with the pharmacist in Ontario, who was over the moon by the prospect of this policy. So I'm right with Laura. The positivity is there. I feel good about it, but it's not necessarily going to help me sleep any better at night when I think about the overall state of the healthcare system. Yeah, and I, I will complete the trifactor of positivity with a measured concern or hesitation, maybe. <laughs> positivity um, with a caveat. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, 100%. It increases access to the care. Fantastic. If you have a strong relationship with your pharmacist, I'm fortunate enough to, to have that, that, you know, there is that working relationship. There's that understanding. There is that, that shared health history and, and insight into what I've been dealing with in, in my life. And, and so there is knowledge around that. That's all great that you can, they can now have increased, uh, you know, supports available, more services they can provide directly. However, it always comes down to the quality of the care. Not everyone has that relationship with a pharmacist. Sometimes you're just using, you know, you're going to a shopper's drug mart just to get a prescription filled. It's not even necessarily the one you always go to. It could be a first time or a second time. You're just going intermittently. You don't have that relationship. Sometimes that's where the the concerns of hesitation can come from. It's mm. the quality of care that you are going to receive. And another aspect to this, my pharmacist uh, recently started opening this like kind of quasi clinic so they can help, you know, like treat these types of conditions and have a more structured uh, a setup for these types of services. However, the company managing that we've had a very poor history with. So again, it comes mm, to that quality mm. of care. Do I really trust to go and deal with them? I would deal with my pharmacist directly, but not the the clinicians or, or the people on staff that are going to be actually handling these types of situations. So overall positive, if it means more access to healthcare, more treatment options available for folks, great. Just what is the quality of yeah. care actually going to be like? Good answers, good caveats. Well done by both of you. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Alberta expanding the use of pharmacy clinics. How do you feel about pharmacies being used as health clinics, good or bad? So I've already told you the social media channels. I'll remind you again about the email address, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone. I keep telling you, grab the phone, give me a call, talk to me. What's good, what's happening, what's new? 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, the news panel kicks off discussing federal judge deeming it unreasonable for the Liberal government to use the Emergencies Act during the Freedom Convoy. What do you make of that ruling? We'll find out. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday. That means the news panel gets together just before I welcome in Michelle McQuig and Alex Smythe for a conversation. Let's set up the first story. A federal court judge has ruled it was unreasonable for the Liberal government to use the Emergencies Act to quell freedom convoy protests in Ottawa and several border crossings two years ago. Justice Richard Mosley says invoking the act was an infringement of constitutional rights. The government will appeal the decision. Here's what Deputy Prime Minister Chrystia Freeland had to say. I would just like to take a moment to remind Canadians of how serious the situation was in our country when we took that decision. The public safety of Canadians was under threat. And here's what NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had to say. From the beginning, we've said, we said and we maintain that the reason we were in that crisis was a direct failure of Justin Trudeau's leadership and also other levels of government that failed to act to take the, the challenge presented seriously. Their inaction resulted in a serious crisis. All right, let's jump into this conversation here. Saying hello again to Alex Smythe. Alex, hello. Hello, Dave. And saying hello to Michelle McQuaig. Hey, Michelle. Hello, everybody. Let's jump right in, Michelle. What do you make of Justice Mosley's ruling? Well, it is adding another layer of complexity to an already complicated situation. The main reason for that, of course, is the fact that it directly contradicts the finding of the commission, the Rouleau Commission. Yep. So that is... You can just see how this is going to play out in the in the weeks to come. This is grist for the opposition mill of, of all stripes. Anyone who is opposed to the invoking of the Emergencies Act, irrespective of how they felt about the convoys, now has ample fodder for this. We know it's going to be complicated by other... There's a criminal case that's still in process. There's another lawsuit that's still in process. Mm. The government is offering to, to appeal this. It's probably going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. I just foresee nothing but complications and, and infighting and squabbling about the, the the Emergencies Act and when it's appropriate to use. I see I foresee this forever, all against the backdrop of a highly emotional debate. Yeah. Yeah. That is just going to deepen the rift already existing in the country on this issue. It's almost unbelievable to think that it was two years ago, right? Like I, I'm, always, Truly, make, I'm yeah. always making this joke: the time is a flat circle, and the pandemic has like totally morphed my perception of time. But it's like, but Alex, it still is wild to me that we're talking about something from two years ago that's really important and really significant, but that people are still so emotionally connected to. Absolutely. And it, it was something that even caught me off guard uh, when I was doing like kind of reading, reading the articles, like looking at the dates, it's like 2022. Oh, my goodness. Like, I, it didn't feel like it was that long ago. It didn't feel like two years had passed since the events first unfolded. Overall, I, I feel like I'm not all that surprised. I, I think it was even on a news panel filling in for you, Dave. Like we had talked when when these events were unfolding, when the, the public inquiry were taking place. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I, I, was, I, I, was, I was on vacation last yeah. year when, when the Rulo report came down. So you were definitely filling yeah. in for me that week. And I, I believe we we talked about okay, what were the next steps? What were what was going to happen? It was going to go through the courts, and I, I think even then I, I kind of thought, 
okay, most likely it's going to be found that it's it wasn't necessary. It was uh, kind of a bit uh, found as to be an overreach from the government, and you know, sure enough, it was. I I think. It comes back to, and in, in, uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh kind of pointed this out, and I think that's really what the crux of this is. It's like, look, this was a failure of government all through the uh, different levels, and be, you kind of set yourselves up for failure. That's why you went uh, through these steps. So that's, I think, really kind of what the findings have, have shown. It's like this, it wasn't, it was a overreach by the federal government, but it's exasperated by these other circumstances. Um, and, you know, the fact they're already, uh, the Liberal government come out and said, we're going to appeal this, yeah, no surprise. Yeah. This is, not, this is yeah. not the end. This is rarely going to be the end of a situation like this. <laughs> yeah, Michelle, it's, it's... Can I just flag one other piece of fine print, though, from the Mosley ruling that I find interesting sure. and that I think will get lost in a lot of the discussion is that he's saying that he's making his ruling with the benefit of hindsight and with more information that was available to him than what the ministers had at the time when the decision was taken. So that's an important distinction, I think, and I don't think that's ever going to get acknowledged. So I just wanted to get it on the record yeah, that this yeah. is what he mm -hmm. said. Like, it, it is, like, it, it, I feel there's a fundamental uh, difficulty in having these conversations because we're comparing apples and oranges. There, there, there really is no comparison between discussing it with two years of, of perspective and what it was like at the time. And, and I think, Michelle, you did a really nice job of identifying the murkiness, the, the, the conclusion of the public inquiry versus what's going through the court system. They're fundamentally different questions, right? The public inquiry was about Absolutely. getting a bunch of information and trying to understand what the process was. The conversation going on at the court level has a lot more to do with the rights of individuals, constitutional rights. That That's wasn't right. something that, that, that Paul Rouleau was tasked with in the in the in the public inquiry so so it's it's worth understanding that you're asking two different questions here but Alex I I, I liked your observation here as well that even in Justice Rouleau's uh, report from the public inquiry he said at the end of the day, the Liberal government pretty much had no choice but to use the Emergencies Act. But he did say that the instrument is too blunt. He did, in that report, yes, he, he, did. Did, he yeah. did task government and leaders and officials to actually figure out something that's that's better or less of a blunt instrument. And I, and I think that has maybe been forgotten or lost in the conversation in the last year or so as well. Yeah, because I, I think like the specific thing was uh, taking it from the the CSIS mandate of uh, I think it's like threats to national security, having that removed from the uh, definition of I believe it was the emer uh, evocation of the Emergencies Act or along that line. That was one line that I remember sticking out, and so it's it's making sure there is a higher um, kind of threshold to to meet for uh, for uh, for bringing this forward in the future, which is uh, certainly something that is going to garner a lot of uh, uh, attention going forward. Because the reason why we still have this debate two years after the fact is this was a a huge issue. It's oh, a, yeah. Idea, it's, a it, oh, yeah. it's a philosophical oh, yeah. idea of when does the government have the right to restrict uh, or have, have the power to restrict the rights of Canadians. And I also found interesting another thing that was kind of a little kind of subline within the report is the idea that, you know, the, as you said, this was a legal, um, this is the legal case, and it's the idea of a restriction of rights. I, I believe I read that the, uh, he found that the two individuals who uh, account for frozen, that their, their rights weren't violated, which I thought was very interesting. But overall, 
there was more concerns around, you know, the infringement of yeah. rights of Canadians yeah. within yeah. this process. So it's an interesting caveat that, okay, the, uh, the two uh, members who had their accounts frozen because of concerns around funding to prolong uh, the protest, that wasn't, uh, you know, an infringement of rights, but just overall the idea of freezing accounts and, and choosing individuals, yeah. that is uh, infringement of rights. Yeah. I, so many layers. Yeah. And, but, and I think that's why it remains a very interesting conversation, because you're talking about idealized theories versus the real world. Uh, Michelle, I mean, you, you and I ran shotgun on this for a, for a long time together during the winter of 2022, talking about the situation oh. playing out in Ottawa in real time. And I've always publicly said, I understand why the federal government had to do what they did because of some complexities that have to do with policing in Ottawa, basically five different police forces running about three kilometers of space in downtown Ottawa. Like that's always going to cause a natural authority problem. And there was an utter breakdown. People were caught unprepared and the situation was devolving. So I've always said I understood why the liberal government had to do it. But I, but I was pounding the table, Michelle, when thinking about the future uses of the Emergencies Act. Oh, I, I remember. Was, I was always very uncomfortable because you it's 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 a grenade and you can't just casually toss out these grenades. And I am concerned that any government might feel compelled on a whim to toss out the Emergencies Act. I, I so so wh where I stood two years ago is where I continue to stand today, even after finding about finding out about this ruling, reading Rouleau's report last year. I I, I mean I, I I still understand, but I'm I still think that that it's a problematic tool. I, I yeah, and and I think the rulings bear that out. Uh, as Alex pointed out, Rouleau said something along those lines. Of course, Mosley's criticism was all the sharper given the ruling he the conclusion that he came to a couple of days ago. Um, and I think that's kind of my big takeaway from all this is that everyone who who shared your concerns about the bluntness of the, or the 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 lack of nuance to this tool. Uh, those those red flags are now being raised in several different official capacities, and I suspect we'll continue to do so as other cases wind their way through. Um, the, the, the sheer complexity of invoking it is now very much on display here. I do suspect that these rulings are going to be establishing a precedent that makes it more difficult to use this tool or that will demand some changes to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, you know, it's hard to argue that that would be a bad thing, and that, of course, is the whole point. The, the, the Rulo Commission, it's worth noting, was enacted because it was part of the law. Yes, that's right. You, it's use, right? Like, <laughs> the, the liberal government a, didn't do that out of the goodness of their own heart. The second you invoke yeah, the Emergencies totally. Act, there has to be an inquiry. It has to be an inquiry, and that and that's what they did, and that's what the Reload Commission was all about. And now these are providing some additional checks and balances in a way that can establish precedent because it's in the court. So I, I there's... there's a lot of value, I think, and a lot of people are probably relieved that some of these more complete conversations are happening yeah. after the fact with the benefit of hindsight, like Mosley said. I think we did that well, guys. I don't think we're going to get any hate mail, but uh, who knows? The Emergencies Act uh, tends to bring people out of the woodwork. <laughs> Thank you both for this. Let's. Uh, the emotions are raw still, like even, even for those who lived it and covered it. It's it, it doesn't feel like two years ago. Yeah. Oh, man. Talk to residents of downtown Ottawa. They'll, <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll tell oh, yes. you a million horror stories about what that month was like for them. Okay, let's put this one to bed. Coming up next, more federal government stories. Busy week for the federal government. The federal government is capping the number of international student visas. 
What effect could that have on the long-term sustainability of post-secondary institutions? That question will be explored and so much more on the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Alex Smythe and Michelle McQuig. Let's get into the next topic. The federal government is capping the number of international student visas. The cap will mean a 35% overall reduction in new student visas this year. Immigration Minister Mark Miller lays out some of the thought process. Even though we've put a lot of thought into this, these are still very pretty much blunt measures from the federal government. We're we're playing with um, with taps that we're turning on and turning off and, and allocating between province. Uh, so it's, it, did we get it right? We'll see. Uh, but we need to work with provinces in the meantime to make sure that they are doing their jobs. Michelle, you broke this story on Monday on the show <laughs> in real time, and there, were, there weren't really many details available as you were sharing no. it. But this is a great opportunity four days later to reflect on some of the reaction and the ripple effects. What threads do you want to pull at in this yeah. conversation? It does kind of go against the grain for me to give you guys one sentence and then not follow it up with something more comprehensive. So <laughs> thank you for humoring me and letting me come back to this. But I do think it's very interesting because I feel like this issue comes up when discussing a lot of the really hot button topics of the day. It comes up a lot with regard to to housing, to the strain on, on provincial resources of all types, to the, the, the education experience of international students itself is an absolutely fascinating and often a terrifying thing to explore. There's a, a really excellent Walrus article from a couple of years ago that I highly recommend for those who want to read about more of the details of the system that, that the very complex machine that brings international students here and the way Canada has become a really prime destination for that. Um, all of this, of course, is happening against the backdrop of another heated topic of immigration, which is becoming a, a really, really fraught and complicated one to discuss. So mm. all of the, the international students kind of lie at the nexus of all these issues, I find. And this measure uh, does seem like a, a one that's getting some more nuanced reaction than we're accustomed to seeing. But there's a lot of different threads that it could have an effect on. So the government is talking about addressing one particular issue with these measures, but it has knock-on effects for other ones. And yeah, I could yeah. Just imagine uh, us batting this around a little bit. The, the, the Ontario uh, Colleges Association just yesterday came out and said this puts them in a very bad position economically. Yeah. And I, Alex, I actually think that's maybe one of the, the places to start this conversation mm -hmm. rather than some of the lenses that get tossed out like housing. Okay, like, yeah. you know, like I think we've sort of beaten the housing horse to death here. But I, when you get the reaction that there's been from universities and colleges all across the country, it really does suggest how much the the money made from international students, and it's significantly higher than, than tuitions huge. for Canadian yeah. residents, it really begs some questions about the long-term viability of post-secondary schools in Canada without massive numbers of international students. Yeah, because it's like it could be quadruple the amount a uh, per student from an, uh, when you compare international to a a, uh, a local Canadian student attending the same institution for the same program. I I feel like 
post-secondary institutions have really um, kind of it, it's it's all about generating revenue. You know that that's really at the heart of it. They they offer the the programs and 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 the classrooms and and those experiences and the education. But it's really about okay, how do we stay viable financially? How can we maximize the the growth and and provide opportunities, bring in and attract students, faculty, staff from all over the world? You want to be the best institution within your backyard, and mm. you do that by by having the 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 more resources and so it, it always is tied to money and obviously the international students is is the the biggest cash cow for a university in my opinion mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you know you can generate so much revenue from very little um, I guess extra work being done because the student is coming to uh, to do the same program as a local student would but you're you can charge them far more yeah you know? I yeah. So let me let me put that number in context, right? I, th I think it's yes. sort of sort of pulling it a specific here. You guys may recall the conversation that we had about Quebec raising tuition for out of province students, out of province Absolutely. Canadians, yeah. a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple months ago, and we dove into some of those numbers. So a Quebec resident going to a university like McGill or Concordia is going to pay a couple of thousand dollars a year to attend the school. A international student will pay $20,000 yeah. a year, right? So, Michelle, this isn't just some situation of, oh, it's a couple nickels here, a couple nickels there. No. This is like 10x. This is a substantial amount of money that might get sucked out of the university systems and college systems. I I believe I've seen the word billions tossed around in a wow. few different provinces. Yeah, I, 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 if not hundreds of millions... For possibly billions. They are crazy amounts. And this is where I, Dave, I actually agree with you completely. One of the key issues here is the sustainability of the post-secondary system. We've had provinces like Ontario writing reports as far back as 2019, saying that the current system was unsustainable, that the, there's been a tuition freeze in place for a while, that the governments have reduced funding to, to colleges and they're trying to make up the differences through these international students. And that's where it comes back to the, the experience of going through this this machine that really is a machine and, and some of the, the human consequences of that approach and rationale that Alex laid out so well are just horrifying when you think of the individual exploitation of some students. Meanwhile, you've got governments that are that are not acting to do more to bolster the post-secondary system. So when Mark Miller on the clip off the top made reference to the provinces doing their jobs, I can't help but think that's part of the conversation mm. of how do you try to limit their dependence on, on international students. So reducing student visas is, is, is one piece of the puzzle, but it's not directed at sustaining these post-secondary institutions. Yeah, yeah. And now that conversation has to happen alongside it all. Well, the money has to come from somewhere, right? Otherwise, you're talking yeah. about cutting programs or cutting staff or cutting faculty or reducing student services, right? Or like, closing altogether like or, Laurentian. Yeah. Or closing yeah. altogether uh, like Laurentian or individual colleges closing like newspaper, journalism, and broadcasting programs, right? Like Absolutely. that, that yeah. bummed me and Alex out a lot last year uh, when we were talking about that off the air. But Michelle, you wrote an email to me or to us earlier this week with some of these questions and thoughts you wanted to pick up. And you wrote this question about the actual student experience and the way that I interpreted that was actually the overall student experience of everybody who attends schools rather than just international oh, students okay. because because I was applying mm -hmm. the lens of my time at McGill University and what it meant to have such an amazing group amazing. of diverse people coming from all over the world that that again I I, I did not live the shelteredest life in the world growing up in Montreal but it was it was kind of sheltered and McGill was just this eye-opening experience of meeting people from all over the world. And Alex, like, that is what university and college is kind of
kind of supposed to be. It's supposed to be that chance to learn about people from different places. And I do worry that there's going to be some tapestry lost on campus when you lose that flavor. Well, and even beyond the idea of just having people from all over the world, it's what are the level of services going to be available for students on campus? That's how I interpreted uh, the oh, question. Okay. Because okay. <laughs> I, we're, we're all viewing this from a different different lens because I think it goes back to the financial support. So, okay, well, there, if we're not getting the amount of money from international students coming to attend our institution, we're going to have to cut back on the on-campus services and experiences that you can actually offer up students. So it may be a lot more bare bones that you're literally here you attend a class, there may be a couple of, um, you know, like food stalls, and, the, and that becomes basically the end of your student experience. Everything else is just on you or you're paying extra for that. That's how I kind of view the lens. But I 100% mm. agree with you, Dave. The fact that it's like there is such a, a an element that will get lost when you don't have the international students. You, you, you can't just sit down with someone who's from another part of the world and find out why you decided to come to this institution. That was a great part of my experience when I was at Trent University is yes. it's having chats yeah. with these these international students and find why did you come to Peterborough of all places? Yeah. I know why I came. It's like, why did, why did you come? You could have gone anywhere. It's, it, it was truly fascinating. And, and Great it was question. Fun. Yeah. It's fun. Uh, Michelle, I, I love that the three of us all interpreted your question in different ways, and that's why yeah. people end up breaking up over text message, because sometimes it's hard to understand the written word. But what do you want to explore in the actual student experience question? <laughs> I mean, apart from the fact that an editor is obviously so unclear as to provoke three alternate reactions, <laughs> obviously I gotta gotta up my game. Um, but yeah, like all of these are very valid. I, Dave, I, I shared your experience of, of just loving the, the experience of, of getting to know people from from beyond my usual circles at in university. Alex, I think you're really onto something because that is exactly what's going to happen. The universities have been open about this. If if they if they are losing this funding and can't recoup it somehow, there will be cuts to the campus experience. But I was also thinking of what I mentioned before of, of the the international students themselves who have to get who come here after being recruited through this elaborate system and then who they were then dumped on this. And that is what part is part of what the government claims to be trying to address through this is shutting down some of the bad actors as in, you know, really Mickey Mouse colleges that don't offer a quality education, ideally trying to, to, to curb some of the practices that dump people here without any kind of supports, without with strict rules that govern how much work they can do, which leads them to work under the table and in really unsafe ways. And a lot of the time, there are so many different ways to look at that, but I think they all have value and speaks to exactly what a complicated issue this is. Mm. Cause you can't, people hear international students and immediately put it into a box of like, Oh, this is just a very specific section of the, of the, of the system. It's, it's, it's universities or colleges at most and doesn't have any knock on effects. I very much beg to differ. And I think we're seeing that here. Michelle, I appreciate you've made a couple references to that article in The Walrus because that was actually featured on AMI-audio's uh, Voices of the Walrus show. Uh, Don Dickinson stopped by to explore it. I, I want to say it was about a year and a half ago or so. And you're right, some of, some of the horrifying exploitative stories from, like like you say, I love that, Mickey Mouse colleges and, and what they're doing to people while, like, charging them tens of thousands of dollars for oh, these sort yeah. of, like, non-diploma programs, like, like, pre like preposterous stuff. 
Here's where I do want to circle back to housing, though. I know I kind of kicked the can down the road here, but I, I want to do this through a framing. I, I want to change the framing of the housing side of this because certainly that has become the cross-section or intersection of a lot of conversations about current immigration targets, visa, and then comparing that to the housing crisis that we've, again, yes. uh, kicked, that, well, kicked that dead horse uh, considerably. But I've always had this question rolling around my brain on the, on the student and university side, college and university side of the housing crisis that begs this question of, should colleges and universities be responsible for using their resources to build significant amounts of housing. And and I Alex, I know I'm kind of ambushing you guys with that question, mm -hmm. but but I but I do think it's a fair question to start asking if universities and colleges want to keep these high numbers of international students, should they almost have to have a one-to-one -one ratio of available, appropriate housing for those international students? And, you know, maybe more than just like the dormitory experience, right? Building more purpose-built uh, apartments that would be suitable for someone in their third, fourth year, grad school, et cetera. Well, and absolutely, because I, I think regardless of whether or not you know uh, students are staying on campus or not the students are paying someone to stay and live while they're they're uh, attending the the school might as, if you're a university or a college that is another revenue if we want to talk go back to the money conversation if you want to maximize the amount of return you can gain from a student build more accommodations and have the students paying you instead of a landlord or or another um, uh, rental company to be able to stay there. I mean, it's it's these revenue streams and I, I always view it's like, that's what is the most attractive point for a university or an institution is how can we generate more, more money yeah. and more sustainable income? This is the way to do it because uh, I, I can tell you from my experience of currently looking to find somewhere to rent in Hamilton, Oof. Ontario. It is a big student oh. town. You got McMaster University, you got Mohawk College. Some of the uh, units I have seen is just awful what's being charged. You, you'll you pay $2,500 a month to share a bedroom with someone else in, in a basement. It is hard. Just, no, it's atrocious. It's, a, it's atrocious. And how can someone feel they can get away with it? Well, it's because they know there is a need. People need to be able to stay somewhere and they're willing to pay that. So I, I think the appetite for student housing is never going to go away. If you would make those investments, make it, you know, attractive, students are going to choose your, mm -hmm. your, your mm -hmm. buildings, your, your uh, residences over others. So it, it could be a huge windfall for the institution to, if they move that step. I barely like living with myself. I can't imagine uh, sharing a room with someone. That would just be uh, too crowded, too crowded for me. Uh, Michelle, I know, I know it's a little bit Dave Brown consulting-y, but I think it's a reasonable question. At what point should colleges and universities actually be responsible for building better housing ratios, student body, but especially when it comes to uh, international students? Sure, it's definitely a great question, but I can just imagine the response now in light of the the, the, the cash crunch that's already been flagged. Is it yeah, probably going yeah. to say, well, we don't have the money to build it because we don't have these student 
these international student fees. So that would put us right back in a chicken and egg scenario. Perhaps this conversation should have been happening a long time ago. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, there's your, your your hot take for the day. <laughs> I, I mean, like like this 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 has been an issue for the feds for quite some time, and I, I feel moved to point out too, given the partisan nature of how these conversations often tend to go, that. The current international student strategy that Canada has been following was tabled in 2012. So that was in the Harper era. Um, just wanted to get that out there for those who, who uh, have heard a lot of opposition reaction around this file of late. Um, but yeah, like this, these conversations were not happening and now they are at a, at a point of crisis. And I, regardless of any merit to any idea that's put forward, I can just foresee the reaction that's going to come and saying, sorry, our hands are tied because we have no money. So even if there's value in the idea, I don't really see how it's going to get acted upon. Michelle, are you asking people to have some kind of semblance of a memory when it comes to politics? Uh, come on now. I know. It's highly unreasonable of me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Putting the pieces together and asking for continuity. Uh, come on, guys. Uh, I know. What's it's, going it's a big on? Ask. Oh my gosh. All right. Let's put this one to bed as well. Alex, Michelle, thank you. Coming up after the break, Edmonton is increasing the cost of single-use paper bags. How are you feeling about reusable shopping bags at this point? It's pretty much become common culture for them to be everywhere. My kitchen is currently overrun with them. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown alongside Alex Smythe and Michelle McQuig. One more topic to discuss, and it's one that I have been yammering on about all week. Edmonton is increasing the cost of single-use paper bags to 25 cents starting on July the 1st. The city conducted a survey that shows most people have gotten used to bringing their own bags. The cost of a reusable bag is also going up from $1 to $2. I teased this earlier in the week when I broke the news story and all heck broke loose down the hallway in the control room. And I knew it was because technical producer Eliza Rocco was probably giving her hottest reusable bag take. So I said, Eliza, grab a camera and record this so I can play it on the show on Friday. Let's find out what Eliza Rocco had to say. As I'm sure many of you can relate, I have a mountain of reusable bags at my home. Um, it's great, I've been using reusable bags for a long time, I'm very environmentally cautious, but I think I have about 25 excess bags. What, what do I do with these 25 excess bags? I tried to look into it, I tried to Google, I tried to talk to people in my community. No one really has an answer for me if I can donate them, if thrift stores will take them, if um, shelters will take them. I just, I haven't found a concrete answer that I can do with all of these bags. And in the past, when there have been plastic bags that you get from stores, me and most people I know would reuse those plastic bags, either as garbage bags or dog poop for cat litter, you name it. We reuse those bags. So now we don't have those. So our garbage bags or dog poop bags or cat litter bags, they have to, we have to go out and buy those bags in addition. So that's a whole other affordability crisis, um, along with buying the reusable bags when you forget them. 
and buying more plastic bags for things you'd reuse other plastic bags for. And what about people ordering groceries to their house? Some people have to do that and they have to buy reusable bags every single time. And sure, you can ask like, oh, can, I, can you pack it in a cardboard box or, or something that um, is not a reusable bag that you have to pay for, but those are always available and usually in my experience aren't. So you have to buy these bags every single time and that goes back to affordability and how grocery prices alone are so high right now. That's just another cost to add on. A few years before this ban started, I remember there being these gorgeous biodegradable plastic bags. They had a little green tint to them. On the bottom, it said that they would biodegrade. They would biodegrade in your garden from a week to a month. That seems like such a, an excellent solution to me. And I'm, I'm really wondering what happened to that? Like, what happened to that idea? Why didn't the government fund money into that idea? It just, this overall, this ban seems very short-sighted and very greenwashing to me. Oh, I like that Eliza used the word greenwashing right at the end there. I'll get to that. We, we almost don't need to have this conversation. I think Eliza hit all the points in a quality way right there. Michelle, take me into your kitchen. How overrun are you with reusable bags? I am ruthless about this. So I'm not overrun, but I definitely have a bag of reusable bags going in addition to the one that I always, always, always keep rolled up in my purse. So that's how I try to limit it is because I always try to make sure I have one on me so I can... Shut it down in the past when someone tries to give you more reusable bags. Um, but I, I, I have become a plastic bag hoarder for exactly the reason Eliza mentioned. Anytime I can get my hands on one, I keep it because I was, I was that guy who would, I was, well, like most of us, I think we would reuse them all. Single use plastic bags did not exist for me. That was not a thing. So I, I, I think I've managed to strike a, a bit of a balance, but it takes work and it didn't used to take work. Yeah, I, I'm very jealous that you get to carry a purse around with you because as a, as a man, we have pockets, but right. you know, there's only so many things we get to carry around to stash a bag. I was making totally. reference to my school bag earlier this week. I got to bring my school bag everywhere with me <laughs> to keep my reusable bags in my school bag. And I look like a six foot three. Like you tell you're 10. Yeah, yeah, I look like okay. a six foot three, 300 pound toddler. You know, like that's that's just the life. That's just the life that I'm living over here. Uh, right. Al Alex, Michelle talked about the notion of Plastic bags were not necessarily single-use plastic bags. Mm -hmm. And Eliza made reference to that, and I made reference to that earlier in the week. Whenever I would travel, plastic bags is where my laundry would go so I wouldn't get my Dave stink all over my clean clothes as I was working my way through the, uh, through the vacation. And, and I want to be clear about something. I don't outright object to the idea of moving away from plastic bags, reducing plastic waste, but it kind of feels like a drop in the bucket, right? How much plastic wrapping comes on your groceries already? Still buying plastic garbage bags and recycling bags. Even my condo makes you use bioplastic for compost. Are we kind yes. of greenwashing ourselves, Alex? Uh, uh, definitely, because of all the things that you mentioned in the fact, it's like, oh, you, here's a box and in uh, a bag for your garbage bags that are already just a bag. You know, it, it's it's these compounding uh, factors of all these other levels of, of plastic. And let's look at the grocery store. Okay, you go into the uh, the produce section. Oh well, here is an here are oranges, here are apples, here are bananas. Well, I'm just going to pull one of these non-biodegradable plastic <laughs> yeah, bags off yeah. the shelf, stick it in there. <laughs> 
and then I'm going to put it on and then I'm going to put it in another plastic bag to carry it home. Like, I am fully aware how ridiculous that is, yet I still do it because it's so ingrained in my, like, process. And I, even though I know it's like a banana has its own self-container like it, it, you're not eating the peel of the banana you peel it to eat it you don't need to wrap it in plastic but i can't shake that routine that i yeah, always go yeah. through because i'm like well it's a buggy or a, a um a shopping cart or a basket well those could be dirty i don't oh, want my yeah. bananas to be dirty you know sure. it's, it's just like kind of yeah. back and forth it's like why not just make all those biodegradable as you say like i have those compostable um uh, green bags for our, our our compost and and things like that why don't we just make that more readily available? I know there's concerns around, okay, well, it, does it stay, you know, are there issues if it gets warmed up or are there elemental concerns? But frankly, who cares? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not like those other plastics are all that great to begin with. And if this one biodegrades, even better. Michelle, are we kind of greenwashing ourselves with some of the, some of this uh, hoot nanny and hoopla around, uh, around I... plastic bags? I mean, it's the perennial question with a lot of these single-use plastics discussions i, I we we remember that from the straw debate oh right? big time of, big of, time yeah uh, that's what comes to mind for me is people who are breaking out all kinds of data to show what a drop in the bucket straws really are and and but and especially when you consider the microplastics in in in, in electronics in soap in, in soap and the soap you soap, wash yeah, yourself yeah. with you're sending in microplastics like, like, into the rivers that's it right it, it, it's it, they're in literally everything we use so it, there does feel there there are questions that are begged when these things come up i'd say but at the same time if you're trying to instill more conscious thinking about it i would argue that the plastic ban debate in this case has actually gotten that happening we're talking about this right yeah now. yeah we're discussing our habits we're rethinking where we use bags and why we do this like alex what you were just saying now is a classic example of more mindful thinking about this whole issue i i, I bet there are a lot of people who have decided to to ditch the the, the the optional plastic bag on the grounds that you just mentioned that it is self-wrapped so i hesitate to, to to write it off as an entire waste of time or not worth not worth discussion um but yeah there's there's more it's yeah. simpler or it's, it's more complex yeah. than people would have it believe that's okay. why that's why i put the caveat on it caveat on it right because i do i do acknowledge there's way too much plastic in the world and i want to be someone who's part of the solution not part of the problem but there is also a lot that goes into the production of these reusable bags as well i, yes. I know that feels a little bit like the disingenuous electric vehicle debate that sometimes goes on well what's the lifespan of the carbon emission to build the battery but you know it, it, it is at least a fair question to contemplate how much it takes to again create and create and create these reusable bags that then I've got 25 of them in another reusable bag in my kitchen because circumstances happen. Uh, Eliza mentioned the, the grocery delivery, right? Like we are all yep. on varying spectrums of blindness and there are some days where I'm like, nah, someone's going to deliver my groceries to me today and I end up getting four more reusable bags, Michelle. Yeah, no, cheers. I, and I have to argue, like I, I hate the material a lot of those bags are made from. And I'd love to know how much plastic is in those things. Yeah, just, yeah. You know, the like kind of gross feeling. It always feels kind of dirty, that, that rough mm -hmm. material that it's all made of. Like, I, I'm just, I'm not into it. So, I, yeah, you're, I'm with you. There, this is, I, there are more questions today, but I, but I really don't think it's, it's not worth discussing because there are, like, I, I'm with Eliza and that I would love to find a way to offload some of these bags. 
ultimately, though, it probably is more of a net positive than not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, let, let's talk about a couple solutions because a few have been uh, bantied about this week. Number one, I was making reference to some of these more nylon bags that you can really make quite small and like slide into your back pocket, but are That's still quite... That's the bad boy in my purse right now. It's the best. There nylon you go. Nylon bags forever. Yeah, because even, yeah. <laughs> even something like that, you can break it down pretty small. You can put it in your back pocket. It doesn't, you know, make your butt look too big. You know, like it's like it's all right. Yeah. You know, I, I'm obviously a very aesthetically caring person. I deeply care about how I look and present uh, to the world, even though my <laughs> shoes are covered in mud right now. Anyway, neither here nor there. So I like I like today. I like I like the uh, I like the nylon bag idea. Um, I've also had a few people put to put the idea forward this week of a deposit. So it's kind of like buying a can or a bottle of, uh, of beer or soda, where when if you buy a reusable bag, it's almost like it's a deposit. So let's say it costs you a dollar or it costs you $2. You can return it for say like $1.75 because you have to factor in some cleaning or whatever, logistics. But at least there'd be a component of, okay, I've got, I've, I bought this bag. I don't need this bag. I'm going to bring this bag back and I'm going to get a deposit back. I think that's a reasonable solution. I like that. I, yeah. I also, uh, you get companies like Costco, for example, that haven't had bags for years. Mm -hmm. When you check out a Costco, they just put everything in a box, right? They they use the actual shipping boxes and pallet boxes that they get for, for their products arriving, and you check out with your stuff in boxes. So, Alex, of some of those solutions, and you're welcome to put any others forward, which ones really mm -hmm. jump out to you? I mean, the box one is always one that I would go back to having worked in a grocery store and in multiple departments for about like five years, the amount of cardboard, uh, like just disposal that I had to do in a, any given shift is is huge and it's like it's multiple trips going to the baler like compressing all <laughs> these dozens and dozens of cardboard boxes that could be usable for anyone who's coming and that's it's already there it's already made you're not getting away from making cardboard boxes because you need to ship these products well give it to people that they can go and use it instead of us just disposing of it at the grocery store level let people take it home they don't need to use the car uh, their the plastic bags and things like that to transport then they dispose it it's still a net game because the box is always going to be made it's going to be disposed but you're going to have an individual dispose it at the end of the line and it saves that process i i think that's always where you have to look for a solution something yeah. that you're you're not creating something new to solve the problem it's already there it's, it's just extending the life of the item to solve and remove other things in in the chain that's really where you yeah. get impact michelle any thoughts on a few of those solutions put forward or maybe even a couple of your own I'm really feeling the deposit idea. That sounds interesting to me. And I have to say, I like the system that my grocery delivery place takes of having reusable plastic boxes. Oh, um, love that. that. Yeah, those are great. They're fantastic. Now, they're, they're a little bulky, but that's a really small price to pay because they, they, I can just imagine they're not that hard to, to re-sterilize when they come back to the grocery at the, at the other end. Uh, I have concerns about excessive reliance on cardboard boxes for deforestation reasons. Uh, so I, I like that <laughs> approach that my grocery company has taken. I, I think that this strikes a good balance. Yes, it's plastic, but it's highly reusable. Yeah, yeah. And then and and it just it 
ticks a lot of boxes. Now, I grant you that a lot of places don't necessarily have that option, but I would love to see more of them adopt something like that. Michelle, I know you've got a heart out in about a minute here, but let me tell you guys a quick story about my experience in the prairies in Winnipeg with a single-use uh, paper bag. Uh, I did not oh, know. No. I did not. I did not know that Winnipeg had a single-use uh, paper bag policy. I was on vacation. I did a poor job packing. I forgot to buy toothpaste. I went to a pharmacy. I bought a bunch of stuff, including like some sodas, some chocolate bars, some snacks. I was going to be in Winnipeg for three or four days at checkout. Hey, uh, do you want to buy a bag for this? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need one for sure. So I didn't realize I was buying a paper bag. Another piece of context. Another piece of context here. I was about a two kilometer walk from the hotel and it was 45 degrees with humidity that day. So Big, sweaty Dave with sweaty soda cans and toothpaste in a flimsy paper bag starts <laughs> making his way down the streets of Winnipeg to go get to his hotel. And I realize about eight minutes into the walk that the bag is disintegrating. It's melting. It's literally disintegrating in my arms. Oh, I made it as far. Yeah. You know what? I've got to take, I've got to put all this stuff down and figure out a way to carry this home. And this is where my reliance on cargo shorts finally paid off. I dress like a loser, but function finally paid off as I loaded up my cargo shorts with uh, everything I could and then managed to sort of schlep the rest in my hands. Uh, that is my pa single-use paper bag story. Never again, Michelle. Never again. And now you'll have validation for... <laughs> and that's all I was looking Look for. Look out streets in Toronto. Here comes tape. Here's fashion. 40-year-old Dave Brown with his toddler school bag and cargo shorts and muddy shoes. <laughs> ladies, ladies, hello. Lock them doors, baby. <laughs> uh, Bumble profile picture. Here we come. Michelle, I took you a minute over your heart out. Have a nice day at work. Talk to you on Monday. Worth it. Take care. <laughs> Alex, don't go too far. You and I are catching up again in the second hour of the show. Sounds good, Dave. <laughs> That's Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig and Alex Smythe, the co-host of this show. Coming up after the break, a few interesting stories in the regional news update, including a big change in the way that Alberta is delivering some primary health care. And then Brock Richardson stops by to set up what will be a very good weekend in sports. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca or on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. No excuse for you to ever miss a single second of the show. Did you know that the show has almost reached its 1,000th episode? Sands of time keep on slipping. I'm Dave Brown. It's Friday, January the 26th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Danielle Vallone from the University of Calgary describes five early indicators of Alzheimer's disease. And the Dublin Literary Prize revealed its long list of titles. 
Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access will tell you about some Canadian authors who made the cut. The hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the prairies, the Alberta government is expanding the use of pharmacy care clinics. Shoppers Drug Mart plans to open 103 clinics by the end of the year. Health Minister Adriana Lagrange discusses the policy. Anyone that can come to a clinic would otherwise perhaps go to um, one of our hospitals and we know that they are strained at this point in time. Also, it relieves pressure on our the family physicians as well. And, uh, you know, uh, we want to make sure that primary care is working together. Similar clinics are already operating in Ontario and Nova Scotia. And don't forget, this topic is the subject of the Daily Poll. You can vote at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. Over to Ontario. Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner says she feels a sense of urgency around artificial intelligence. Michelle Zadakian has more. The worries Patricia Kosim has about AI include it being used to spread information, dupe Canadians, entrench biases, and cause discrimination. She says AI chatbots like ChatGPT are also concerning because what they produce is not fact-checked. Kosim says the output from such chatbots is creating a wild west and she worries about bad actors exploiting the technology. She's already seen people with bad intentions use AI to mimic executives' voices, duping employees into thinking their bosses asking them to transfer funds to a perpetrator's account. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And one more story for you this coming out of the Atlantic provinces. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs gave a State of the Province address yesterday. Higgs talked about balancing a growing economy and population. It's also been difficult managing that growth with the impact it is having on housing, healthcare and schools. We're investing more than ever, but the reality is that our growth has come very quickly and we are introducing major shifts that take time. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk sports with Brock Richardson. I am simultaneously excited and sad because the NFL playoffs continue this weekend. A couple of pretty compelling games with Baltimore playing host to Kansas City and Detroit visiting San Francisco on Sunday. But Brock, it also means that there's only three football games left in the year and then I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Yes, you'll just have to watch... The Edmonton Oilers continue their winning streak. That's what you'll have to oh, do. The hockey. Uh, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I want to watch more football. Brock, uh, there are actually quite a few storylines going into this weekend. Which one do you find most compelling? I, and we've talked about this before, but I like the fact that we've got Jared Goff, who was a number one in the NFC matchup. We've got Jared Goff, who was a number one draft pick, and we've got... Brock Purdy for the San Francisco 49ers, who was deemed as Mr. Irrelevant as he was drafted last in the 2012 draft. That, to me, is a kind of a cool story that we uh, can look at. I think this is going to be a, an interesting game. I will tell you that I, I think this is where the Detroit Lions um, end their run here. I think it's, it's, it's going um, to be the end. 
I would also say another interesting uh, storyline here is that this is now uh, three straight NFC championship games for the San Francisco 49ers and four out of the last five. This is a team with a ton of experience. They are the third oldest team in the NFL as we currently sit here. So it's just it's just going to be a real compelling game and lots of cool storylines. What do you think? I am looking at the other game with Baltimore playing host to Kansas City because you talked about the quarterbacks in the Detroit-San Francisco game. Underachievers, overachievers, the jury is still out on those two players. But when you talk about Patrick Mahomes for the Kansas City Chiefs and Lamar Jackson for the Baltimore Ravens, these are multiple-time most valuable players in the league. It's marquee kind of stuff that right now the world is Patrick Mahomes' oyster. He is the guy. Lamar Jackson is a player who's been underestimated his entire career. Coming out of Louisville, uh, drafted late, late, late in the first round, passed over for a number of other quarterbacks. Some commentators even thought, he's not even really a quarterback. They should make him a wide receiver. And within two years, he was an MVP in the league. And he has not been able to translate regular season success into playoff success. And it really feels like this team, this year, where the Baltimore Ravens stand is going to be one of his best opportunities. But he has to slay the dragon. And you know how hard it is to slay the dragon of Patrick Mahomes, the best quarterback in the league. So, Brock, my focus this weekend is excellence. I think that Baltimore and Kansas City are probably the two best teams in the league at this point, and it's a heavyweight tilt. And I'm really happy that it's the early game because that means I can probably watch it at a bar. Yeah, yes, for sure. And I, and I would also say, and I know this is, you know, for those NFL lovers out there, I would say that this is the better matchup than even the Super Bowl for the same reasons you you just illustrated. Uh, if Lamar Jackson doesn't get this done now, you have home field advantage, then we're starting the conversation all over again, and we're thinking, what are they going to be? And then we get all the naysayers about Kansas City. Here we go again. They came back. They won again. Yada, yada, yada. Storyline goes on. I am really rooting for Baltimore, although I think, Kansas City does it again and gets it done because they're just so good in the playoffs. Yeah. Their one sort of thing that I that I could highlight is their defense can be a little bit susceptible lately, but I think the other thing is that Baltimore has a really really stingy defense, so we'll see what this translates into, but I agree with you. For if you're Baltimore, this is now or never and I, I hate to say it, but if it doesn't happen now, it might not happen ever oh, for Lamar Jackson. Uh, man, that is why sports is such a crushing mistress, because windows open and close on you so fast. Okay, Brock, NHL this weekend. Busy weekend ahead of the All-Star break. A couple interesting matchups on the board here. What has your attention? Like, what do you consider to be the must-watch game of the weekend? I would say, let's see. Uh, I would say Nashville versus Edmonton. Edmonton keeps rolling yeah, on yeah, just yeah. winning. I'm looking at the matchups and I'm going, well, that's not really marquee. That's not really marquee. No, the Edmont the Nashville versus Edmonton, this is becoming must-watch television. They won again last night 4-0 over the Chicago Blackhawks. They just keep rolling on. So that's the one that I would highlight. But all the Canadian teams are in action because it's the last uh weekend before the All-Star break, which is in Toronto. So 
yeah, really good weekend, but that's the one I would highlight for you. Yeah, I think at this point, if you're looking for, for some hockey, the Oilers are, are probably going to be the one. Uh, that's it, no doubt about it. Uh, Brock, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. You as well. That's Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Just before I stop talking about sports, there is one more notable hockey thread that I want to pull at. The Montreal Canadiens took down the New York Islanders last night. The final score was 4-3. to three. The outcome is not the story. Canadiens legend Patrick Waugh returned to Montreal as head coach of the Islanders. Waugh was only named head coach a few days ago. Before the game, the crowd gave Patrick Waugh an extended standing ovation only in the way that Montreal knows how to do it. Here's what Patrick Waugh had to say about that. I mean, I'd like to thank the Montreal Canadiens for that. I mean, it was really nice of them what they did, and um, the fans were just like like usually. I mean, this is this this is a good crowd, and it's like in New York. So the good fans and they they're, they love their teams their team and and they they want to support them and I'm I'm thankful for that. It's obviously not the first time that Patrick Waugh has been back to Montreal since he was traded in 1996. He was the head coach of the Avalanche for a while. He, of course, was a starting starting goaltender for a couple Stanley Cup teams for the Avalanche as well. But Patrick Waugh has always had this spiritual connection to Montreal, winning a Stanley Cup there as a rookie in 1986 or again in 1993. Montreal has this way of putting their athletes on pedestals, and Patrick Waugh was just like the definition of excellence and creativity and an artist in net, and it's always cool when Montreal gets a chance to welcome their saints back to the building. The ghosts of the form might have gotten lost somewhere between Atwater Street and De La Gaucheterre since they opened the Bell Centre in 1998, but... St. Patrick is always going to have a special place in Montreal's heart. Coming up after the break, January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Daniela Vallone from the University of Calgary describes five early indicators of Alzheimer's disease. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. It's important to learn early indicators of the disease. Daniela Vallone is a medical science PhD candidate at the University of Calgary. She's identified five behaviors that might warrant further attention. Hey, Daniela, thank you for making a little bit of time today to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me. I, I'm curious what led you to this research, why you wanted to explore this. Yeah, so um, I primarily wanted to explore it because my grandma, um, just before she passed away, she also had Alzheimer's disease. And so um, that's kind of what led me into my research. Um, so I, I honestly, when I started, I really wanted to look at different like biomarkers and things like that. Um, and my supervisor, he was actually part of a team that led what was called like the mild behavioral impairment checklist, which was kind of a checklist that um, people could use to kind of screen for these behaviors that might be early indicators of dementia. Um, and so I became really interested in that. 
In a lot of these cases, these strike me as fairly common behaviors. So, so let's run through them a little bit. Apathy, what's some insight as to why apathy might be an early concern? Yeah, so um, that's actually the domain that I study uh, the most. That's where my research is in. So apathy is kind of like a lack of interest, initiative, and emotional reactivity. Um, it is different than than depression itself, um, but it has been found to be associated um, both, both cross-sectionally um, and longitudinally with uh, dementia progression. Um, so people who have apathy um, after the age of 50 years of age are more likely um, to develop dementia later in life. This next one probably requires a little bit of explanation or definition. Effective dysregulation. Yeah, so effective dysregulation um, describes like mood and anxiety symptoms. So um, people who are sad or tearful, um, they become less able to experience pleasure or feel like they're a failure. Um, and they might just be a little bit more anxious or worried about things that they normally might not have. So like appointments or events. What about impulse control? How does imp impulse control end up being an early indicator? Yeah, so impulse uh, discontrols the inability to delay gratification. So um, somebody might become more easily agitated than they used to be, um, or aggressive or irritable. Um, they might become more impulsive or act recklessly. So maybe they tend to speed more um, than they used to, um, or they just become a little bit more rigid. So they're maybe unwilling to see different people's points of view um, and just stay very focused on what they believe to be right. What about the behavior of being socially inappropriate? Uh, th this one concerns me because I can sometimes cut a, cut a hot take when I'm at the bar. Yeah. So um, when somebody is uh, socially inappropriate, the way that we define it according to the MBIC or that checklist that I was talking about earlier is that the person might be less concerned about how their actions or their words actually affect others. So it might look like a little bit insensitive. Um, they might also talk openly about personal matters that they probably wouldn't have usually discussed previously or um, they wouldn't normally discuss in public. Um, they might also like lack social judgment. So they behave or say things that they wouldn't uh, normally do in public. The final early indicator, indicator that's been identified is to monitor abnormal perceptions or thoughts. What are some examples of that? Yeah, so this domain can also be described as psychosis, and maybe people are a little bit more familiar with this one, but it's somebody who's developed beliefs that um, that they're in danger or that people are stealing their belongings or that they're going to be harmed. Um, they might develop like a suspiciousness of, of people around them um, or question the motives or intentions of those people. Um, it might also be that the person hears or claims to hear or see things that aren't really there. Daniela, I know this isn't necessarily the scope of your research, but mm -hmm. certainly if someone were listening or watching today and thinking, oh gosh, like I, I might represent a couple of these things, what's something proactive that, that, that they should sort of take immediate action on? Because I know there's no official treatments necessarily for dementia and Alzheimer's, but there are, there are ways of preventing uh, the progression. Sure, yeah. So the first thing that I would say is um, to see a physician, um, just because a physician would be able to, um, you know, use assessments to determine whether or not there is any concern or need for concern. Um, but in terms of prevention, um, I would say that 
a healthy diet um, is definitely something that goes a long way. So in order to prevent dementia, eating those leafy greens, sticking with like the Mediterranean diet, eating lots of fish, um, those are things that uh, you can do. Exercise is really, really important. Um, so ensuring that you are performing cardiovascular activity um, and like strength and or weight training. Um, also sleeping. So sleeping is like a largest factor. If you don't have enough sleep, I think between at least seven to eight hours of sleep a day, it does change depending on your age, but, um, these are just some things that you can do, um, to prevent, to prevent dementia. Hey, Daniela, really grateful for your time today. Thank you for all the work that you and your colleagues are putting into this research. Uh, keep up the great work and please stay in touch. Would love to touch base with you again down the road. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dave, for having me. That's Daniela Vallone. Daniela is a medical science PhD candidate at the University of Calgary. Let's switch gears here. There's no elegant way to do this, but let's bring in Laura Bain for the entertainment report. Laura, there's the, Laura, there's a little bit of exciting news here uh, in terms of uh, the Junos in 2025. Yeah, that's right. So it's been announced that the uh, 2025 Junos are going to be happening in Vancouver at the Rogers Arena on March 30th, 2025. So they're going all the way from the East Coast this year and headed to the West Coast next year. Uh, we don't know yet who's going to be the host, but as soon as we know, of course, we will share it with all of our lovely audience. Right on. Hey, it's that that's one of the cool things about the Junos. It really does make its way around the country and it just breathes that life. You and I had that conversation a few weeks ago about what it's going to do to the Halifax region with in terms of concerts and series all around it. It really does breathe musical life into a city. It's fantastic. Yeah, it sure it sure does. All right, let's uh, stay in the music theme here. Amazon Prime has a new movie dropping today called The Underdogs with Snoop Dogg. Yeah, that's right. It's a new sports comedy movie uh, featuring Snoop Dogg and uh, co-produced by Snoop Dogg. As you mentioned, it's called The Underdogs. And so it's about a character, Jason 2Js Jennings, <laughs> uh, which is played by Snoop Dogg. He's a former pro footballer whose career has kind of taken a bit of an unfortunate turn. And then he's sentenced to coach a youth football team as part of his community service. Now, I believe we have a trailer to play, which you're going to do some setup on. Yeah, I've got to do a little bit of described video on this one because we just pulled it up this morning. So inside a courtroom, a judge gives a ruling on Snoop Dogg's character who's wearing a neck brace. He's then seen speeding down a Long Beach road and pulls into a football field. He interacts with a junior football team sitting at the bleachers. You pled guilty to charges of speeding and damage to city property. I'm recommending community service with the Long Beach Recreations Department. I thought I was getting like some Martha Stewart kind of treatment. You too good for the community that raised you. From the depths of the sea, back to the black snoop doggy dog, I am football legend Jason 2Js Jennings, your new head coach. Legend. Let me get a picture with y'all real quick for Twitter. Some of y'all gonna get some girlfriends with this right here. Laura, you and I have talked before about how much I I love Snoop Dogg. Like, I love him as a musician. I like him as an actor. I like him as a broadcaster. Just a huge fan of Snoop all the way around. And, like, the premise here is, you know, a tried-and-true premise of a lot of movies. You know, think the Mighty Ducks uh, 30 years ago or so. But I think what's cool here is that Snoop actually runs a community football program like this in Long Beach. So there's a little bit of an autobiographical connection as well with Snoop as a community builder in his community. 
Yeah, there sure is. And uh, apparently he drew on that experience, as you would imagine, for the film, including like encountering some well-meaning but foul-mouthed coaches. Uh, <laughs> so there's uh, definitely some swearing in this. I guess it was actually hard for them to find child actors whose parents would let them be in this film because of all the swearing. So this may not be one to watch with the kids. <laughs> um, another kind of autobiographical part of this is that it's actually filmed and features like Snoop Dogg's former high school, Long Beach Poly Highs. So that part is kind of cool. Now, I went on to scope this out right before the segment so I could tell folks, of course, if it had audio description. I couldn't find it on Amazon Prime, although everything is saying it is supposed to be released today. So I don't know what the delay is, but uh, <laughs> folks can can look for that. And if they don't see it, maybe just check back tomorrow. I don't know. But what do you think, Dave? Is this one uh, you're going to add to your watch later list? I, I actually think this is one that I that I might consume here. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to consume happier content here of late, Laura, because I find there's a lot of darkness in the real world and a lot of darkness out there in general, and I kind of feel like this is one that's going to put a smile on my face. Not dissimilar to a movie that I saw last night, I went to the theaters to go see the remake of Mean Girls. Oh, very, very nice. Yeah. So, what what did you think of that? I haven't seen it yet. Was it was it fetch as they say? <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely fetch. I love the callback there, Laura. I, I think I've told you before. I, I loved the original version of Mean Girls. I saw it in theaters a couple different times. I've watched it on cable pretty much any time it pops up. I, the source material is excellent, and this movie did a great job of respecting the source material while still bringing it into a much more modern story more diverse casting, more diverse actors, some more complex themes being explored while still keeping the heart of the story. And Laura, the songs and the music and the choreography, incredible. I, it, it, was a, it was a one minute and 45, uh, one hour and 45 minute giggle fest for me. I had a delightful time going to see it at the theaters last night. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's a musical, right? It this is. Version it of is. It? Yeah. yeah. So you're, are you being won over to the musical genre? <laughs> hey, I was a theater kid. I was a theater kid in high school. I used to, I, I played Nathan Detroit in Guys and Dolls back in the day in grade 10. I, I'm not, I'm not a hater. I'm not a hater of, of the musicals, but I will, I will offer one last piece of praise here on the way out the door though, Laura. Uh, Tina Fey. Uh, it was the original writer on uh, Mean Girls and Tina Fey, of course, of 30 Rock fame, Saturday Night Live. She also uh, features in, in this particular iteration of the story. You and I were talking about Jon Stewart yesterday as sort of like these voices of a generation or the last couple of decades in the context of late night television. I don't think you can have that conversation without talking about someone like Tina Fey, because I think she's been she's been on point with almost everything she's done for the better part of 20 years. And, and she's just tremendous. She's, she's probably one of the most well-rounded people in all of Hollywood. And one day, if Lorne Michaels, the executive producer of Saturday Night Live, ever stepped down, I think she would be the perfect candidate to step in and take on that role. Yeah, I think that's probably a good choice. I think she has an autobiography out there or a book that I actually listened to. I, I can't always, I can't remember. My my memory is not as good as Dave Brown's, but I'm sort of <laughs> recalling listening to her, listening to her memoir and it being very funny. So yeah, she's, I agree. She's yeah. uh, really funny. Totally brilliant. Anyway, Mean Girls, if you get the chance, if you're looking for maybe a date night, something to do, certainly worth checking out uh, if, uh, if, if, you're, if you're at all interested. I, 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 th I think it was worth the money.
Uh, but but I, but I also love going to the movie theater. Like going to the movie theater fills me with total joy. Yeah, well, you know, choices for the weekend. You want to stay at home and catch a little Snoop uh, Snoop Dogg, maybe <laughs> indulge in some recreational uh, substances there. You have that choice, or you can go uh, go to the theater and check out Mean Girls. Either way, you're getting some levity, which is something I I also really appreciate in the content I consume. Yeah, there, there might have been some recreation uh, before Mean Girls last night. Uh, Laura, I got to go. Have a great day. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, Alex Smythe has a musical question to bring to the round table. But first, another big car company is expanding their electric fleet. Mike Dubusky zooms in for another edition of Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends. Fully electric Porsche Macan. The Porsche Macan is now all electric. Please do not call it the Macan EV. That will be something that Porsche will have to correct a lot of people on because it is the only Macan. EV Pulse Editor-in-Chief Chad Kirshner says the current gas-powered Macan is Porsche's best-selling model. It is their small SUV crossover. The new electric Macan is a little lower and longer than the outgoing model. Model, and in top spec turbo trim, it's quicker too. That's a 3.1 seconds to 60, which is insane. Also quick, charging. 10 to 80% charging in 21 minutes, which is pretty quick. That's at a speed up to 270 kilowatts. That's because of the company's latest premium electric platform. The base model Macan 4 starts just over 80 grand. The turbo model is over 100. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Sometimes life here in Studio 7 at AMI headquarters can get a little lonely. But over the last couple weeks, I'm getting more visitors. I must have done something about my body odor, so they want to spend more time with me. Because for the second time this week, Ramya Amuthan is joining me inside Studio 7. Ramya, hello. Hi, Dave. Yeah, you're, I will attest, two days in a row, it does not stink in here. Yeah, the, the sea, look at this, mm-hmm. top notch. And I'm wet from my walk in this morning. So, like, oh, you know, there's yeah. all the more reason as to why there could be some stank coming off me. Uh, Nazreen Abdelmajid, also uh, standing by for a roundtable conversation. Nazreen, hello. Hi, how's it going? Not too shabby. And Alex Smythe, you want to pick up on a conversation that was started earlier this week by community reporter Derek Lackey. Yeah, Dave, because uh, you and David, uh, uh, you and Derek started having a, a great conversation just uh, promoting uh, upcoming music and metal concerts, specifically with Pantera coming to Winnipeg. I'm a huge metal fan, and it got me thinking about underappreciated music genres because in my mind i think metal is one of the most underappreciated genres of music out there so i wanted to bring that idea to the round table and find out what everyone else thinks is the most underappreciated music genre so i want to start with nisreen because nisreen i know you're a music lover what is Mm -hmm. the most underrated uh, music genre i'd have to say jazz i feel like nobody thinks of jazz and it's so (laughs) it's so um soothing and relaxing and it's it's wonderful to listen to um yeah Nazreen how'd you end up getting into jazz how'd that happen well my dad I he loves jazz so 
typically we're the type of people that we listen to music during dinner. It's either piano, like classical piano or jazz or, or whatever it may be. So uh, I loved it. And that's how it is when I, whenever I need to stay like relaxed or whatever, jazz is the way to go for me. Love it. Ramya, uh, most underrated music genre, underappreciated music genre. Okay. I, I do think that um, every genre has its listenership and followership because oh, nowadays, course. you yeah, know, like, subculture. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. And nowadays, like you can get a hold of everything. So even if I don't appreciate something, somebody like there's a, a bunch of other people out there who will. Uh, for me, though, of late, I'm getting really into country and folk. I oh, don't yeah. Even know if, that's it right there. Right? I don't even know if they're somewhat related, but to me, they kind of go together. Uh, and the two kind of, you know, I, I rolled my eye at country for a really long time. Folk, I haven't had too much exposure to. But uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was post-pandemic. Can't remember anymore. Uh, but we went to to highlight the Ontario Folk Music Festival with KR back when it was Kelly and Company. And we did like a whole live remote for a couple hours, live musicians, and I swear to you, after that, I went in hard with folk. And then I started going to folk jams and just appreciating it. I still don't know enough musicians or music, but I appreciate the actual yeah, genre yeah, I, a lot. I think that's I think that's a really good way of putting it. I am gonna I'm gonna quibble with you a little bit about country music being underappreciated or underrated. Okay. It's the second most popular know, music genre in the world. That's why I had to caveat it with my comment before that. <laughs> but but I think I think you're bang on the money with folk. That that would be my answer as well. Mm. I've been listening to folk music for a a long time so nice. but but you but you mentioned something there in your response that I think matters because yes everything now is on Spotify or or uh, or Apple music or Amazon music you know you'll pick pick your service right for streaming purposes but it used to be that if you wanted to actively follow some of these subgenres Alex you had to go to the record store and you had to go in like the little dark corner to go find some to go find some of these CDs yeah, absolutely, Dave. And it's like, you know, it's they're they're being artificially linked into one very broad genre like you know for me saying metal like there's so many subgenres oh of metal. yeah rock there's so many subgenres of rock country pop etc etc so you're like wait i'm i'm not finding the thing uh, the band i'm looking for it's like are they actually under rock instead are they actually under country right. instead of folk are they and like it, it, it was such a a strange kind of uh experience going in because you never quite knew it's like if you were seeing all the bands or the artists you were looking for were actually categorized or viewed in the same way as being a part of this genre opposed to some of the other ones so alex if make the case for metal you mentioned that you're a big yeah. metal head why yeah i think metal is such a a broad classification of music overall because when people think metal they just think loud angry hard music there are so many subgenres in it the complexity alone of the music it is often said that metal is the closest thing to classical music due to the complexity and structure of the music Whoa. itself beyond that there is also such a distinct 
uniqueness of the regionality of metal. You oh, have yeah. Oh, European, yeah. you have Swedish, Finnish, you get South American, you get bands like Sepultura and, and coming out of like Brazil, you get Chilean bands, you get Asian bands, you got The Who coming out of Mongolia, you got Baby Metal coming out of Japan, you have such a distinctive <laughs> flavor from all over the world, and you have the more operatic style you have the heavy screamo you got the the complex like progressive you got the dancer industrial music like ramstein you know there's a nine snails like there's so <laughs> many different avenues you can explore in it that it is hard to just quantify it all as this is metal okay Damn. I, yeah that, that's that's encycl <laughs> that's encyclopedic right there that's that was that. yeah that was a good one oh. happy snaps for sure wow. okay uh we're gonna run out of time here so i've got to say goodbye <laughs> to alex and nazreen but so thanks guys have a great weekend but ramya i cannot say goodbye to you just yet because you are hosting kelly and ramya later this afternoon 2 p.m eastern time on ami what's coming up on the show okay we have gardening with susan kearney she's going to talk about all the ways we can use vinegar in the garden that's going to be interesting Ooh. Yeah, and uh, we have the Chatty Bookshelf with Ryan Huey, so of course, audiobook talk. He's going to tell us what's already trending and making huge waves in the audiobook world uh, starting 2024 off. And App Update, where we talk tech with John Beeler. He's going to tell us a couple different things, including um, about the Samsung Smart Ring, which he says is going to start a new era of wearables for people. Yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, I'll, be I'll, oh, believe yeah. it. I'll believe it when I see it. People have been wearing <laughs> smart rings for like five years now. Uh, Ramya, thank you for this. I appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. That's Ramya Emuthan. She'll be hanging out right here in Studio 7, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-TV. Coming up next, the Dublin Literary Prize revealed its long list of titles. Karen McKay from the Centre for Equitable Library Access tells you about some Canadian authors who made the cut. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. The Dublin Literary Prize revealed its long list of titles, and there are a bunch of Canadians who made the cut. Karen McKay has some more details. Karen is the communications manager for the Centre for Equitable Library Access. Hey, good morning, Karen. Nice to chat with you, as always. Good morning. Happy Friday. So, the prize recognizes the best work of fiction in English internationally. The long list features 70 books by 80 libraries from 35 countries. Who are some of the Canadian writers who got the nod? So, we've got eight Canadian writers on the nomination list, which is, you know, as a percentage, is pretty awesome. So, um, Emma Donahue, who folks will be familiar with, she wrote Room. She's nominated for uh, Haven. And then we've also got folks like Billy Ray Belcourt, Suzette Meyer. She wrote The Sleeping Car Porter, which we've talked about, Eleanor Canton, um, William Ping, Kevin Lambert. Really, it's it's an incredible list of Canadian authors that are nominated for this prize. What does that say more broadly about the state of Canadian literature and its perception internationally? 
Well, I think having, you know, 10%, more than 10% on this list is a really, it's an indicator of how well-received Canadian uh, authors are and Canadian literature is. I, I was doing a little bit of research, and back in 2021, there was um, the Booker Prize, which is another major international prize. There were three Canadians on the shortlist, uh, which is pretty phenomenal, and a Canadian one. That was the year Jan Martel won for Life of Pi. Um, and I think that that was really a turning point, and it's continued to grow. And I think part of the reason is um, diversity, like Canadian authors uh, really represent a huge range of uh, experiences and viewpoints, and they bring that to their writing. Um, I was looking at another list of, of North American Indigenous authors to be looking uh, at, and more than half of the list was was Canadian authors. So, uh, you know, I think that Canadian authors are, and Hamlet in general are really well-received. We're not just writing with the main character of the, you know, the wheat fields in Saskatchewan anymore. There's a real mm. diverse perspective being brought forward and people are connecting with that so yeah canadian literature i think is having a moment for sure the shortlist is going to be announced on march the 26th the winner on may the 23rd so i know you'll keep me up to date with that one as it uh, as it all rolls through but let's talk about another canadian author nova scotian author amanda peters has become the first canadian to win a carnegie medal for excellence this was for her debut novel the berry pickers what makes this book and this author such a standout well, so the story is about a, a four-year-old girl from a Micmac family, and she goes missing in Maine uh, in the straw in the blueberry fields of um, in 1960s. And then 50 years later, uh, a young girl named Norma from an affluent family, she's determined to find out what her parents aren't telling her. So I think this book uh, was a winner for this award in particular because it involves, like we were just talking about, a really diverse set of experiences. It crosses the international border there. So some of the stories happening in Maine, but there's some Canadian elements to it as well. Um, and, you know, I just am thrilled for Amanda that she's got this award. It's so incredible to see debut authors pick up major awards uh, and I, again I think it goes back to the you know the real moment that Canadian literature is having that we have all these fantastic mentors who are and publishers who are bringing these works forward and yeah so I'm thrilled for Amanda. I like that. Good vibes. Good vibes all around, Karen. Nice on a Friday to do that. Let's uh, pivot to your featured selections here. The theme that you're taking this week is Black History Month as that starts next week. So you wanted to platform a couple of different authors and their work who uh, you find just to be excellent, beginning with Finding Edward by Sheila Murray. So this book, I think, um, it's it was published in 2022, and it's had some accolades. So it was a finalist for the Governor General's Award. It was listed as one of the best fiction titles uh, by the CBC Books in 2022, and it was on the Canada Reads long list for 2023. But I still think it felt a little bit through the cracks. It's a really beautiful book. It's It feels like a little bit of a hidden gem, so I wanted to bring this one forward. Uh, again, it's a debut novel by Sheila Murray, who's a writer who was um, born and raised in England, but she lives in Hamilton now. And uh, her parents are, uh, her father's Jamaican and her mother is English. And so in the dedication to this book, she says that she, uh, that her parents' courage to marry in the 1950s in England really humbles her. So the book is a, a novel about um, a, a man, two men actually, of mixed race. Uh, one man's given up for adoption in the 1920s, and the other man... Uh, 
he comes to Canada and from Jamaica and he is trying to find his way and their stories intertwine. So Cyril's the man that, uh, that emigrates from Jamaica in 2012 and he's going to school. He's trying to navigate the university life and understand his place in the world as a, as a racialized man. And he has a chance encounter with a panhandler who leads him to a series of um, letters and, and photographs that he finds in his suitcase. And he's drawn into this story and, and that leads him on a path to try and find Edward, who was abandoned by his own white father as a small child and really struggled growing up. And so this book interweaves these two stories of these two men, and it's just beautifully written. Uh, one of the lines that stood out for me was, um, we have to learn for ourselves the things that history has not taught us. And I think this book goes a long way to doing that. So throughout the story, the author sort of weaves through the uh, accomplishments and the challenges of Black Canadians from the early 20s right through to 2010, 2012. Uh, and her intention, she said, is to find a way to help people understand that Black people have been in Canada for a long time and that their experiences predate the Black Lives Matter movement, that there were struggles before and there were accomplishments before, and there'll be struggles and accomplishments going forward, I think. And so um, if you want to learn a little bit more about Black history in a in a novel format, this would be a great book to pick up, but it's also just beautifully written, really touching. You wanted to highlight another novel here, Hold My Girl, a novel by Charlene Carr. So Charlene Carr has about a dozen novels under her belt, and and uh, she's a, a Black woman, and she's writing from the perspective of a woman who's had IVF to have a child. And so that's the sort of theme through this story. Uh, there's two women. Catherine's a white woman, and she feels like she's sort of finally has it all. Her life has come into exactly what she expected, but she's having trouble having a baby. And so she and her husband undergo IVF, and she ends up uh, giving birth to a little girl named Rose. The challenge is that Rose's pale skin doesn't match Catherine's complexion, and doubts begin to grow in Catherine's mind. The other woman featured in the story is Tess, who's Black. She's never gotten what she wanted. She underwent IVF at the same time as Catherine at the same clinic, uh, but after conceiving, her daughter is stillborn, and she spirals down um, a very dark hole as a result. And then uh, just uh, before Rose's birthday, the baby's birthday, these two women get a call from their fertility clinic and the eggs were switched. And so that's where the story really takes off. And um, these two women, their lives are sort of crumbling around them. And there's lots of conversation about what is best for the baby, who should should raise this child, uh, what sort of elements make the the best home is it social stability is it uh, bloodlines it's a really um very emotional story uh so i would you know caution folks who who might find this sort of stuff to be troubling that they they might want to research a bit before they jump into the book but uh beautifully written and it brings up all of these really interesting themes about how does race um, play out in our society now? What's the value of blood versus the value of stability? It's, it's just a really phenomenal book. Mm. And it's, again, it's one I don't think quite got the attention that maybe it should have. So a really excellent book if you want to look into those sorts of themes. Karen, I love the title of this next one. <laughs> sure, I'll be your black friend. Notes from the Other Side of the Fist Bump by Ben Philippe. It's well titled and it sort of captures the the vibe of the book for sure. So Ben, uh, ben Philippe was born in Haiti. He was raised in Montreal and he now lives in New York. He's a black man and he writes from that perspective. And so he's had very different experiences in those three places where he's he's lived and grown. Uh, so he's now living in the States and he is um, 
collecting these these essays. This is a book of essays in in a time of wokeness, really. And so he is hilarious. I don't know if you've read any of, of his work, but he is incredibly funny. So he takes us through his immigrant childhood uh, from wanting, you know, more friends to sit with at lunch at the table to his awkward teenage years. He goes to college in the age of Obama, and then he becomes an adult, really, in the time of Trump. So very interesting perspectives. Um, the, the book commentary says he takes his role as your new Black friend seriously, providing original and borrowed wisdom on stereotypes, slurs, the whole swimming thing, that's in air quotes, uh, and how much Beyonce is too much Beyonce. Uh, <laughs> so he... <laughs> He's hilarious. Um, anyway, he he sort of educates us as white folks about what we should not say or do. Don't touch our hair. Don't openly express your disinterest in dating black people. Don't ask why you can't say the N-word. All of those sorts of things that are, you know, in some ways cultural means, but also really important for folks to understand the perspectives of, uh, of a black person. He's self-described as an Oreo, um, a term that he really kind of struggles with. Um, yeah, it's he's so funny. He talks about how he cheats his way out of swimming tests at university, uh, how he finds stray family members in unlikely places, and how he sort of finds the punchline in the serious. So uh, a really funny book, but also an enlightening and eye-opening one, uh, an excellent read for Black History Month. Karen, I think that is an art form when you can take the serious and make somebody laugh and sometimes take the laughs and identify the serious. Like that is next level artistry stuff. That that is that is pro level expert. I think you would love this book, Dave. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, you, you, do have, you do have a habit of about once a week uh, or once every two weeks hitting me with at least one of these featured selections where I'm like, Okay, and I guess I know what I'm reading from these the next two weeks. Uh, Karen, thank you for this. Always appreciate your insight. Appreciate the hard work that you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, talk to you again in two weeks. Great. Have a great weekend. That is Karen McKay, Communications Manager at the Centre for Equitable Library Access. You can follow CELA on the social media platform X at CELA Library, C-E-L-A Library, CELA library. That's all the time there is for the show today. Appreciate you stopping by, hanging out, sharing your opinions. Don't forget, you can always engage on the daily poll today asking you all about using pharmacies as frontline health clinics. Alberta is expanding the role of pharmacies as frontline clinics. How do you feel about that? Good or bad? At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. If you do leave a voicemail, please give permission for it to be played on the air. Otherwise, we can't do it. Don't want to violate your privacy like that. Until Monday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. And like we do every single Friday, time to say thank you to the people who work their tails off to put this show together. Say it with me. Roll those credits, gang. Dave Brown. Producer Alex Smite. Sports reporter Brock Richardson. 
entertainment reporter, Laura Bain. Contributors, Ramia Muthan, Nisreen Abdel-Majid. Senior show producer, Andrika Delanero. Visual producer, Bruce Paclarian. Producers, Paul Daniel, Marianne Dion-Jones, Bob Pagrak. Production assistant, Hinchley Juco. DV producer, Mark Phoenix. Director, Anastasia Spalding-Stenhouse. Control room operators, Daniel Panamondo, Eliza Rocco, Parker Oxtoby, Caitlin Robinson. Operations coordinator, Jordan Mulgrave. Manager of operations, Kyle Harper. Manager of live productions, Paula Deneen. Director of content development, Kara Nye. Vice president of programming, John Melville. President and CEO, David Arrington. Give us your feedback, 1-866-509-4545. Copyright 2024, Accessible Media Inc. NAMI Original Production. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.